0: and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, Researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support. In the last episode, I shared a little bit about why David Gilmore was so intent on obtaining Algonquin Highlands Pine Timber Limits, and what the Canoe Lake area might have been like before the Tee and Joe Lake Dams wrecked such havoc. In this episode, I'm going to retell the story that Gary Long and Randy Whiteman shared of the Gilmore's tramway adventure. For these episodes, in addition to my own research for many of my books and other podcasts, most of the content comes from a few key sources. These include When Giants Fall, The Gilmore Quest for Algonquin Pine by Gary Long and Randy Whiteman, Algonquin Park's Mow it, Little Town of Big Dreams by Mary Garland, a Raven article called Our Eyes Are Dim We Cannot See from August of 2003, the remaking of the Tea Lake Smoke Canoe Lake Landscape, and Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival. Now, as I have previously shared in episode 27 and 28 about the history of Algonquin's interpretive program, understanding the flora and fauna of ecosystems didn't really seep into anyone's awareness until the 1930s, so it's not fair to project 2022 mindsets onto 1890 sensibilities. But still, having grown up next to a mass of stumps at the south end of Canoe Lake, it wasn't until 1998 when Gary and Randy's book When Giant's Fall was published that I had any inkling that there was a story behind all that ugliness. And it wasn't until 2003, when the Raven published an 1837 map of the South Tea, canoe and Smoke Lake areas, that it was possible to see how extensive the flooding actually was. So what was so daunting about Gilmore's newly purchased Algonquin Highlands timber limits in October of 1892? Well, the big challenge was that where his logs were and where the Trenton Mill resided were in two completely different river systems. This by itself wasn't a new challenge for lumbermen or even for the Gilmores. The company had first faced this challenge in the 1850s when they acquired rich pine limits in the area of Mazinaw Lake in the Mississippi River headwaters. There this system flowed to the Ottawa River so that in order to get the logs to Trenton the company built a crude wooden railed tramway that ran the 2.4-kilometer distance between Mazinaw and Pringle Lakes and used horse-drawn wagons to haul the logs. J.R. Booth moved logs from limits he had around Lake Nipissing to the Ottawa watershed by building a jack ladder at the Lake Nipissing end that raised the logs up to a 7.6-kilometer valley that ran east of Calendar Bay to Lake Nospissing on the Mattawa watershed. Along the valley, he built a railway, which in the end operated until 1912. Other Trent Valley lumbermen, the Boyds, had limits near Kawagama Lake. In order to route these logs to Trenton, they proposed to the Ontario government that they be allowed to build a dam at the outlet of Kawagama Lake and another just downstream of Raven Lake at the Black River, so that the Black River waters, instead of going southwest, would be diverted south to St. Nora Lake. Unfortunately, other Muskoka based lumber companies objected, so the Ontario government didn't approve of that project. Within the context of this overall challenge, the most immediate problem for David Gilmore was to figure out how to get his logs from Lake of Bays to Raven Lake. Though only two and a half kilometers away, Raven Lake was a hundred meters higher, and to yield grade levels that could support a railway locomotive climbing capacity. The circuitous route needed was deemed to be too difficult. Luckily, though, there was one pass, an ancient geological fault, that ran for nearly five kilometers between the two lakes. About three kilometers of this distance was more or less the same height as Raven Lake, and ran through a series of beaver ponds and marshes. By building a timber dam at the outlet of Raven Lake and some strategic blasting along the way, Gilmore was able to flood the whole area, and in essence create a navigable canal. Another dam was built just as the pass started to descend steeply to Lake of Bays. About seven meters high and 60 meters long, it was made of earth and stone and became known as the Tramway Dam. Once this engineering work was done, all that was left to be solved was to figure out how to enable a one and a half kilometer section that rose 35 meters through a narrow pass from Lake Abase to the top of the tramway dam. Designed by David Scott, the company's 50-year-old chief engineer, the tramway, as it was called, though technically it really wasn't one, was to carry 10,000 logs a day. It began with two jack-ladder systems that were connected by a long slide that crossed a level stretch of country between the two. Now, for those unaware, a jack ladder commonly seen at sawmills was a wooden chute-like structure with an endless cleated chain. The cleats on the chain would catch the individual logs and carry them up the incline. One of these jack ladders was about 60 meters long and sat on the shore of Lake of and lifted the logs up a 12-meter slope. Powering the whole thing were two 450-horsepower team engines, and a huge boiler. A set of powerful centrifugal pumps lifted 20,000 gallons of water a minute from the lake to a 24.4-meter-long open wooden tank at the top of the first jack ladder. This was mounted on a timber trestle five meters above the ground. After negotiating the level ground at the pass, a second, longer jack ladder was built to carry the logs to the top of the tramway dam. This one was composed of eight jack ladders placed end-to-end. Most were about 91.5 meters in length, though the first one was a good 122 meters long. End-to-end the collection of jack ladders was 762 meters long and climbed 27 meters to the crest of the tramway dam. Another powerhouse was constructed about 250 meters downstream from the tramway dam and drew the water it needed from above the dam. The log slide connecting the two jack ladders was 945 meters long and was of the type typically used to bypass waterfalls. Constructed of thick wooden planks and supported on a trestle of heavy timbers, this one was unique because it had just enough incline to create a flow of water not the more typical steep decline that carried water and logs in a great rush that we are more familiar with. This slide was one and a half meters wide at the bottom and flared to about 2.7 meters at the top, and some places were as much as six meters above ground level. It ran inland in two broad curves, though at one spot a deep four meter cut was needed through a ridge. This meant it could carry logs as wide as close to one and a half meters. Once this quote unquote summit at Raven Lake was achieved, the rest was downhill all the way. Two dams were built on different parts of the Black River and another just south of Little Wren Lake. These dams flooded a swampy area that was connected together by a few other dams and a few short canals at either end. A steep 55 meter log slide was built to convey the logs downhill for the last section into St. Nora Lake. Note that in addition to all of these trestles, slides, jack ladders, pumps, and steam engines, Gilmore also had to buy over 500 hectares of land along the route, which he did from both private landholders and the Crown. Preparations for all of this construction began immediately after the October 1892 timber auction, as Gilmore was determined to have it all ready for the spring 1894 log drive. To do this, he hired nearly 500 men, whom he housed in bamboo style lumber camp shanties. He even brought a portable steam sawmill to cut up the hundreds of thousands of planks and other timber required for the construction of the log slides and the jack ladders. Though construction of the tramway didn't begin until the fall of 1893, during the summer progress was made in building the various dams and other excavations before the ground and lakes froze. I can't imagine how difficult this work must have been, notwithstanding the mosquitoes and blackflies that must have infested all of the swamp areas. To no one's surprise, Dorset experienced an economic boom, but all was not smooth sailing. There was lots of other opposition to Gilmore's plans. Some lumbermen worried about tapping into nearby Kawagama Lake would hurt their ability to float logs down the Kawagama River, known then as Hollow Lake and Hollow River, respectively, and even impact water levels that fed sawmills on the Muskoka River. Others worried about the amount of water that would be taken from Lake of Bays. The Ontario government promised to look into it all, but did not interfere, most likely because having just received a check of over $700,000 for the Algonquin timber rights, remaining silent, they thought, was probably a good idea. One unforeseen impact of the dams was the flooding of several kilometers of Bobcajun Road between St. Nora Lake and Dorset. Gilmore was directed to build a replacement dry road that would be equal or better than the old one. One other road diversion that had to be accommodated was along the Dorset-Baysville Road. Here the road was diverted a few hundred meters north and the log slide elevated enough that the road could pass underneath it. Amazingly, by late 1893, the construction of the tramway was completed, and soon after, all of the mechanical components were installed by William Hamilton Manufacturing Company of Peterborough. With fingers crossed, the whole thing was started up, and as the Trenton Courier reported, quote, most satisfactory results were obtained, notwithstanding that the weather was intensely cold and ice and snow interfered with the test to a certain extent. The engines were started up, the jack-ladders moved in unison, the water reservoir at the top of the tramway dam filled up rapidly, and the long haul moved noiselessly in strict obedience to the rope drive. And a 30-inch log rolled majestically through the various openings until it finally reached the tramway dam, into which it plunged triumphantly. The unsaid question, though, on likely everyone's mind, was could this engineering marvel— Carry the 150,000 logs that were at that moment being furiously cut on Kilmore's Canoe Lake limits. Now, around this time, cross cut saws were introduced, which no doubt improved the lumberman's cutting speeds. On the 21st of April, 1894, Ranger Stephen Waters wrote that the Algonquin Lakes were now free of ice, which meant that the spring log drive could now commence. The thousands of logs that were now piled on the shoreline of Canoe, Joe, Smoke, and Tea Lakes could now be moved. Now for detailed descriptions of what a typical log drive was all about, check out my episode number thirteen. As Gary Long and Randy Whiteman so eloquently described in their book When Giants Fall, quote Down the lakes, canoe, smoke, and likely Joe Lakes, the booms of logs were winched through the channel to Tea Lake, and on to Lake Dam. The dam quivered under a full head as the icy meltwaters poured through the sluiceway like a black tongue before breaking up into a foaming mass on the jagged rock ledges below. The swift current on the Oxtong River quickly swept the logs downstream. Now as a side note, having paddled the Oxtong River's curving meanderings, I'm having a hard time imagining this, but apparently armies of experienced log drivers kept the churning mass of logs moving. At high and ragged falls, crews manhandled the logs into the newly built log slides. Across Oxtong Lake, the logs were recollected into big booms and winched the three kilometers down the lake. Boulder-filled rapids and narrow, rocky chutes and eventually a smooth, winding channel took the logs past Dwight into Lake Abase. Alligators on Lake of Bays maneuvered the log booms down the lake a good 26 kilometers and up the eastern arm to Dorset and the beginning of the tramway, a journey that took some 15 hours. In early May, the tramway was started up and by May 22nd was operating day and night. In just a few weeks, over 20,000 logs had been hauled up and over the tramway dam. This was according to a letter David Gilmore wrote to Moss and Martin Boyd, who'd expressed much interest in the progress of the adventure. What few talked about was the manpower that was also needed to keep everything moving, even though mechanical devices and gravity did most of the work. Logs had to be prodded from the log booms on Lake of Bays onto the first jack ladder, and between each of the second collection of eight jack ladders. Upwards of a hundred men were needed to keep the tramway operating, including one person whose job was to drop a bean in a jar every time a log plunged into the tramway pond. Engineers were needed to make sure that the boiler, steam engines, and pumps kept working. Carpenters and blacksmiths stood at the ready to make repairs. A telephone system even linked all critical points to provide instant communications the tramway carried logs in a single file at a speed of roughly 80 meters a minute, which was about walking speed. Now, if it ran continuously at that rate, it was certainly capable of conveying the 10,000 logs a day that its designers intended. But evidence shows that it never came close to that volume in 1894. Instead of just taking a few weeks, it wasn't until July 27th that the Huntsville Forester reported that the, quote, last of the logs that the Gilmore Company intended sending over their tramway went over last week. They have left about 5,000 logs in Lake of Bays for the purpose of testing the tramway after some repairs and alterations have been made that fall, unquote. Now other reports indicated that more than 15,000 logs were held back. But either way, best guesses are that it had taken two months or 50 workdays to move 135,000 logs, an average of just 2,700 a day. Now, one could argue that such a massive and complex system was bound to have some challenges on this shakedown cruise. Alas, though the tramway worked, the length of the drive route, some 350 kilometers to Trenton, didn't leave much room for error. Though an engineering marvel its profitability would soon become a big question. From the tramway pond, an alligator winched the logs across the tramway pond and Raven Lake to the outlet of the Black River. Here, log driver crews herded the logs some 10 kilometers down the Black River through the flooded swamp and a final canal slide and creek to St. Nora Lake. Now they were on the Gull-Trent River system. The logs now had to travel the second stage, which was a 180 kilometer route from the top of St. Nora Lake to the lowermost of the Kawartha Lakes near Peterborough. This involved travel not on a river but through some 18 lakes comprised of a dozen separate water surfaces. Each water surface would require winching the logs and booms and then passing them loose through slides at various waterfalls and river channels. As Randy and Gary wrote, quote, such geography did not make for speedy log driving. Though the final 160 kilometers was mostly river, there was still the large rice lake that required booming. The other interesting aspect was that as logs arrived at St. Laura Lake, they couldn't immediately continue on. River driver teams had to wait until enough logs were accumulated for a drive, which was about 40,000 on average. I think it's time for another musical interlude. Today we've got a version of the Log Driver's Waltz by the Wacamee Whalers' Waltz with the Woods album. There are all kinds of other marvelous versions of this song on YouTube, including the National Film Board's animation and also the Toronto Symphony, so I strongly encourage everyone to go and look at some of those as well.
1: If you ask any girl in the parish around what pleases her most from her head to her toes Just will say i'm not sure that it's business of yours but i do like to waltz with the log driver for he goes and down down the white water that's where the log driver learns to step lightly burling down down the white water Log drivers please the girls completely Dry's nearly over, they like to go down and watch all the lads as they work on the river. When evening comes round, they'll all be in town and they'll all want to waltz with the log driver. For he goes burling down, down the white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly burling down, down the white water. The log driver swaps, leaves his girls completely. To please both her parents, she's had to give way then, and dance with the doctors, the lawyers, and the merchants. Their manners are fine, but their feet are of late. There's none with the style of her lock driver, for he goes burning down, down the white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly Burling down, down the wet water log drivers these girls completely Now she's had her chances with all types of men But none is so fine as her lad on the river For when he comes down and he asks her again She thinks that she'll marry her log-driving man And he goes burling down, down the white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly. Burling down, down the white water. But drivers lost these girls completely. Burling down, down the white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly. Burling down, down the white water walk so these girls
0: completely As recounted in when giants fall, a crew of a hundred men, fifty for the day shift and fifty for the night shift, as well as an alligator and several pointer boats, manned each drive. Each alligator had a big searchlight, powered by an onboard generator to facilitate night towing. The men slept in tents, pitched on the shores of the lakes, and the rivers as they progressed downstream. Note also that at the end of each lake, the alligators had to be winched across the portage on log rollers. The whole process had to be repeated at every one of the dams, falls, and rapids encountered along the way until they reached the Kawartha Lakes. Now here, navigation locks existed, which made things a little bit easier though each lock could only hold about 200 logs which meant that getting the 40,000 through would take some time in all four such drives took place over the summer of 1894 below the kawartha lakes the gilmore drive headed down the otonabee river through peterborough and on to rice lake this 48 kilometer section included steep and lengthy rapids with a descent of 44 meters The southwestern end of Rice Lake took them to within 16 kilometers of Port Hope on Lake Ontario. But alas, the drive still had another 92 kilometers to grow. The route along the Trent River to Trenton included a 112 meter drop through some treacherous falls, today Healy and Rainy Falls near Campbellford. The hope was that the Algonquin logs would make it through to Trenton in one season, but this was not to be the case. By September, the two lead drives containing 65,000 logs were just passing through Peterborough, and the third and fourth drives with 37,500 and 32,500 logs, respectively, had only passed Fenland Falls. By early October, the lead drive reached Healy Falls, just 58 kilometers from Trenton. Though close, there was insufficient water in the river to continue, so it was laid up at that point for the winter. The trailing drive stopped at Rice Lake, Lakefield, and Young's Point, respectively. By this point, two years had passed since the original auction, and in total David Gilmore had spent close to a million dollars, and that's in 1893 dollars, and another seven months would pass before he could begin sawing any of his Algonquin pine into lumber and generate profits. The logs from the 1894 drive would not reach Trenton until May and June of 1895. But Gilmore must have been happy enough, because he moved ahead with cutting operations over the winter of 1894-95 and made plans for another drive in the spring of 1895. Eleven logging camps were established, with an average of 55 men in each, plus he hired two jobbers to cut additional timber and in February he ordered a 50% increase in the season's cut to 30 million feet, involving the cutting of a close to a quarter million logs. Though not mentioned that first drive season, in the second there were several deaths, including the son of Tim O'Leary, one of the first Algonquin Park rangers, whose 19-year-old son was drowned on the Oxtongue River. One change on the tramway was the decision to not use Raven Lake water to drive the second set of jack ladders. This required replacing the water turbine with a steam engine so that the water could be pumped up from Lake of Bays. This was because by late summer the outflow into the Black River system dwindled to virtually zero, which meant that no Raven Lake water could be spared and every drop was needed to get the logs from the Black River to St. Nora Lake. Alas, even with those modifications, the tramway couldn't keep up, and reached maybe 3,000 a day, still nowhere near the 10,000 logs a day that was desired. As a result, logs were still going over in July. What made matters worse, 1895 was a dry year, with stream flows below normal. This meant that during the summer there wasn't enough water to run logs continuously from the Black River to St. Nora Lake. Five drives were organized from St. Nora Lake during the summer of 1895. The first, composed of 35,000, had only reached Minden by the end of June. The second drive of 40,000 logs got to Cobaconk and over the slide into Balsam Lake in August. The last one with 55,000 logs didn't leave St. Nora Lake until well into August and was just reaching the mouth of the Gulf River in September. In early October, the first drive reached Healy Falls, but the last drive had only gotten as far as Burley Falls. The first drive kept pushing on and finally reached Trenton. The last drive stopped in mid-October at Lakefield. That fall in 1895, David Gilmore's optimism of the year earlier seemed to quickly turn to despair. As Long and Whiteman wrote, though his bold scheme to float logs 445 kilometers from the Algonquin highlands had proven technically possible, it was also proving nightmarishly slow and expensive. Insufficient spring water, glitches with the tramway, the inefficient nature of the route itself, with its numerous lakes and falls, all combined to impede the movement of logs and drive up costs. What made it worse, though, was that the Algonquin limits... At least according to and Addison's book, Early Days of Algonquin Park, proved to be overmature. Wood was riddled with ring rot and other defects. It's not clear that this was totally true, though some reports said that the logs were smaller than expected and had more conch on them, a fungus that lowered the quality of the lumber. The other issue, though, was that the journey was hard on the logs themselves. Ends got battered and broken, bark was ripped off, and up to 14 months of being immersed in the water may have caused some deterioration. In addition, as was often the case with river drives, was the loss of perhaps 20% of the logs along the way. Unfortunately, with costly timber limits and an expensive log drive, low-quality wood meant profits would be hard to come by. What made it even worse was a softening of lumber prices in 1894, which depressed prices paid to sawmills, and this worsened the situation even more. By 1895, Gilmore had 25 million feet of unsold timber in his Trenton yards. This wood oversupply led to a reduction in the scale of cutting over the winter of 1895-96. But then, in December of 1895, Gilmore abruptly shut down these Algonquin operations and dismissed 300 men and later 400 men in January. A hundred head of cattle, brought in by the contractor for meat supplies, were driven back to Gallert, south of Minden, and shipped to Peterborough. Unwilling, though, to admit failure, the tramway operated for one more season in the spring-summer of 1896. 90,000 logs reached Trenton in September. This early arrival suggests that most of its logs included logs that had not made it over the tramway in 1895, or had been stranded on Raven Lake due to low water, or had reached St. Nora too late to warrant floating any further. In the end, David Gilmore spent close to $200,000, of which $150,000 alone was spent on the tramway, and the related works at Dorset. But in the end, it was clear that the days of sawmills at Trenton and other Bay of Quinty towns was over. It was simply too expensive to bring logs in from so far afield. Gilmore's options at that point, though, were few and far between. He could, of course, sold his Algonquin timber limits, likely at a fraction, though, of what he'd paid for them. But instead, he decided to go for broke and bring the sawmill to the logs. Though Bracebridge or Gravenhurst were the most practical sites, instead he decided to build a sawmill, as you all know, at the north end of Canoe Lake. With easy access to J.R. Booth's new railway that was nearing completion, in May of 1896 the Ontario government issued Gilmore a license of occupation at what later became the Mowat site, and the rest, of course, is history. I've talked about Moat and the community that developed there many many times. However, if you'd like the most up-to-date details, check out Mary Garland's book Algonquin Park's Moat, Little Town of Big Dreams. It of course can be found at the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and their online store. Notwithstanding the sound pollution from the saws and the steam engines and the smoke pollution from the 80-foot-high chip burner, what I haven't talked much about is what the mess was that remained at the north end of Canoe Lake, after the company went bankrupt and the receivers took over in 1901. As to the mill itself, the only picture we have is one that was taken by Ernesto Machado in 1903, which can be found in my book, Canoe Tripping Then and Now, and I think also on the website. All that remains today, hidden offshore in a thick alder swamp, are traces of the rock and brick foundations. Though sawdust was collected, In the basement to feed the boilers, all of this has long since rotted away. At least 10 railroad sidings had been cut for loading lumber and turning trains. These rails were eventually sold and taken up in 1907 to John Gartshore, a Toronto-based firm that specialized in used rails and railway equipment. The Canada Lumberman reported that the company had brought in 500 head of cattle to the Tea Lake Depot many of whom likely ended up at the farm that was located to the west of the mill. As Mary Garland commented, keeping herds of non-Indigenous wildlife, overgrazing, and introduction of non-Indigenous material for feed, not to mention the health issues generated by the leftovers from the butchering of so many animals, the latter of which was commented on by park officials after that last cutting season, presented many environmental problems. The extensive chipyard that contained wood waste and non usable slabs created a wasteland to the north and west. Though the Gilmore license of occupation for Moat stipulated that when terminated all of the buildings and structures were to be taken down and removed, none of that happened. As Long and Whitman wrote, a scavenger's delight, but an environmental eyesore, though several of the buildings were sold to cottage leases in the nineteens. Today nature has reclaimed most of it even the two-story remains of another sawmill that was constructed farther up Potter Creek. It's invisible from the shore due to a 1960s reforestation effort, though the remains of the bridge across Potter Creek still stands. But before I close, there's one more really interesting story about old logs that came from Norm Quinn in his 2002 book, Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival. It's of course impossible to actually know what the forests of Algonquin Park or even of most of the Northeast was like back in the day because there are very few written descriptions. Those that exist describe places where, quote, the sun never penetrates, of ponderous stillness, utter solitude, and mournful silence, of the wild, torn, mossy darkness where not a living creature to be heard or seen except a bird or two with huge gray trunks of dead trees lying every which way. Now, to me, this sounds a lot like the Amick District west of Canoe Lake, or at least the last time I ventured into it on one of the first canoe trips that I took my twin boys when they were about eight years old, which would have been, I guess, around 2000. Every lake, pond, and stream had large fallen pine logs, and I can only assume represented inaccessible areas that weren't really logged all that much during the second wave of logging in the 20th century. What is known, though, according to Norm Quinn, is that, quote, from about 1750 to 1930, the forests of eastern North America were, for all practical purposes, completely destroyed. Worried about the ongoing loss, botanists and biologists everywhere started identifying and naming everything, hoping to capture, I guess, for posterity, what it was all like, so that when it was all gone, there would at least be a record of what was at one time there. Now, let's fast forward to 1995, when Mark Ridgway, who's the head of the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, was wandering around the shores of Swan Lake. Like so many great biologists before him, he was musing as to how long it would take for the mass of debris to rebuild naturally if the dead logs were removed from the bottom of the lake. As everybody knows, I think, submerged logs and lakes are not just great cover for small fish, or in fact any size of fish, but they are also sources of food that become covered with algae and other slimy stuff, which is why we slip on them when we trod on them on wet portages and in streams or shorelines. Ridgway's question triggered the interest of two forest researchers, Richard Guyette and Bill Cole who were experts in wood core extraction as a means to date forests. Over the course of another summer, they successfully took wood core samples from just about every single sunken white pine log in the lake. By analyzing the tree rings, the two were able to ascertain the birth date of every one of the logs that they'd retrieved. As Quinn wrote, most of the logs were found to have been in the lake for over 400 years with the oxygen-poor lake water and pine resin, preserving these logs like a tree mausoleum. The oldest log had started out as a tree around 900 AD, just as the Vikings had started raiding England. It had died and fallen into the lake to become fish habitat 200 years later, as the Crusaders entered Jerusalem. The youngest tree was a victim to the 1890 logging efforts, that likely fell the wrong way into the lake. Now, as a sidebar story, one summer in the late 1980s, my friend John Ridpath and I were snorkeling in the area of Canoe Lake that was once known as the Chipyard, that's now underwater. We discovered a number of deals. These were white pine planks about four inches thick and varying lengths and shapes, which was the standard kind of lumber that was cut at Gilmore's Canoe Lake sawmill. These planks hadn't rotted away, as all of the sawdust wood chips had. Now heavy as heck, they were truly waterlogged, and I set them under my cottage to dry out. About twenty years later, and I can't believe that I'm actually writing this, I was sorting through the junk under the cottage for a garbage run and found the old planks. Thinking it might be fun to see what was under the grey exteriors, I got out my sander. And to my joy, I found underneath glorious golden surfaces interspersed with this marvelous deep gray color. One immediately became our screened-in porch coffee table, and another, a decade later, became what is now a side table in my living room, having migrated there in the fall of 2020 when I left my cabin for good. Check out my website for a photo of this table, that after counting the rings I think was originally over 200 years old and likely was cut down around 1895 i hope you've enjoyed this episode describing david gilmore and his algonquin adventure i'm in the process of collecting all of the images i can find of the old tea lake dam the tramway and gilmore's trenton mill so check out my website algonquinparkheritage.com given that when giants fall is now out of print i may also eventually create a youtube version of this tale as well before i close Here's one last note from the Wildlife Research Station. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not for profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education.